All right, let's take the Word of God tonight and turn to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1. And we'll be looking this evening at verses 21 through 26. And our subject or our title for this evening is A Witness With Us. A Witness With Us. Acts chapter number 1, beginning there in verse 21. And we'll go ahead and read down through the end of the chapter. Acts 1 Verse 21, Wherefore, of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." What we have before us is the account of the disciples replacing the void that, of course, was made by Judas and his betrayal. And so what we're seeing here is the steps that the disciples took to elect or to choose Matthias to fill Judas's place. Now, this is not a random uh, choosing, and this is not a, an election in the way that we sense it to be in some cases in our society, but it is following the instructions, as we'll see here in just a, a little bit, instructions that were very common in the Old Testament. And so you'll notice that it tells us very clearly there in that first verse that we read, it says that these men which have companied with us all the time, so there is this immediate immediate deduction over who would be the eligible individuals to replace Judas. And we'll get into the details in that in our study tonight. But he also lays down here the requirements of what is necessary in order to be a successive apostle or the one that would be put or put in the place of Judas. And you'll notice this very key thought, and that's where we have the subject here, that it must be one ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So we see a very key characteristics or characteristic or very key criteria for apostleship was that they must have seen or been with the apostles seeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So verses 21 and 22 really give us what is simply the criteria for this apostle, the criteria for this apostle. And if we look at this carefully, we can see there's three basic requirements for this apostleship before we get to Pentecost and, and the coming of the Spirit, which we'll look at next week. First of all, notice in verse 21 and 22, as we've already kind of been mentioning here, that it had to have been a man or a person who had been a, an accompaniment with Jesus from the very beginning. It says specifically that it had to be from from the beginning of the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up. 
So we see very clearly this had to have been someone who had been a follower within these periods of time. Uh, he had to have been with Jesus. So in this case, he would have been with Jesus for three years in Jesus's public ministry in order to qualify or to meet the criteria of being an apostle. And that's what we see in verse 21 and then the beginning of verse 22. Uh, when you see that it, it says there that he had, to, he had to be a witness of the resurrection, which is the second half of verse 22. He had to have not only been an eyewitness of the resurrection, uh, this is also what gives us the criteria that why, one of the many reasons why there are not any apostles today. There are absolutely no, there's no person alive today who was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one today was numbered among those who followed after Jesus in the first century. So we have no eyewitnesses who are alive today who can say, I saw the resurrection of Christ. So we see very clearly these first two criteria had to have been a follower of Jesus in that time period, also had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection. And even thirdly, we're going to see even elaborate a little bit more the far most important criteria was the direct commissioning or the direct call by Christ himself. Remember, these, these apostles were chosen and called directly by Jesus himself. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, we see the true, those true prophets were called by God. Uh, we have people such as Amos, and we have Jeremiah, we have Isaiah, and their books and their letters, uh, they give a, an account of their commissioning. They give an account of their call. They give the circumstances surrounding how they were called to be a prophet, how they were called directly and immediately set them apart as prophets. <clears throat> now that leads us into this question. If Christ had commissioned these original 12 apostles, what will they do now? Because there is, of course, Jesus has already come. He's died. He's been buried. He's rose from the grave. He's already ascended. If Jesus was the one who had commissioned and called the first apostles, how is he going to do that now? Well, we're going to see that, of course, he's not able to do that. So we understand that these this groups of people uh, that were candidates, if you will, for this had to have been people who attended uh, the, the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ himself. So what we see happening before us is a process of what is, we'll see at the end, is the casting of lots. And this, so this is not something new that's being introduced in the book of Acts. They're not doing something that's never been done before. This isn't an unprecedented way to, to choose or to find out who is going to be the successive apostle. But what we do see in verses 23 through 25 is we see that there are two men who are put up, and we'll just simply use it as this word, as people or candidates who meet that criteria. Now, one thing to understand is both of these men who are appointed here meet the criteria that we just talked about. So these are not men that are uh, just being chosen for some other reason. They're not trying to be squeezed in by Peter, for example, to try to just get their choice. But what they're doing here is sort of what we might call like a nominating process. Again, only from a qualified group of people. And so they go through this group and there are two possible people who meet this qualification. 
So what happens now is they chose lots to decide between the two. So this is a process that has an Old Testament basis to it. So they appointed these two individuals, and it says it's Joseph called Barsabbas and Matthias. Now, these are two who were known to have been with Christ as constant attendants uh, from what we know about them. And most of, the, most of what we know about them, we have to get from historical accounts because there is little to no information about these men prior to this and afterwards. So we have these two men uh, being uh, named. Now, I'm not going to, to go down a trail that there, is a, there, there are some who take a position regarding Joseph called Barsabbas and who they think that he might have been. And there is some, um, there might be some biblical basis to where we could say we know about him in other portions. I'm not confident enough to take that position. So I'm going to take the position on this. Now, again, you might in your own personal study, you might say, hey, you know, I, I've seen this, I've studied this out, and that's great. I, I would love to hear it um, if you have. I'm just not at a place where I'm, I'm convinced that we know who these two men were. It is rather peculiar uh, that even after the choice, which we, we know how this ends, we see and hear very little about this successive apostle. Uh, we can think about all these scenarios and think, you know, God gives us his word about the importance of replacing Judas. And doesn't our mind go to this place where we say, well, God must have something very grand in mind for this man. We're going to read a lot about Matthias. We're going to read a lot about what he did. We, we don't see anything else about him. But yet here we have the account of this particular apostle. So these two are appointed. And so now we see the process they go through uh, to finally settle on which one this is going to be. Now this goes without saying, but I think it's important just in this kind of a format to say it this way. This is not a popularity contest. This is not someone saying, all right, who's, who's the person who best fits the criteria, who's going to best fit the mold of an apostle. This is a very specific act that they're doing to determine who it's going to be. Now, let me say at the outset, this is ultimately not their choice. This is God's choice. And the casting of lots is to give the indication and the very clear direction in which which man was supposed to be this successive apostle. Uh, so it was not a popularity, con popularity contest. Uh, it was not based upon what the rest of the uh, apostles thought. Who's the best fit for our group? Okay, so this is something very, very specific happening here. Now we notice this is key to the entirety of what we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight about. Look at verse 24, these three very important words, and they prayed. Okay, right there, we've got the two men that are put up as the candidates who are qualified. They meet the criteria of the apostles, but what's the first thing they do? They pray. They pray and it says, and said, thou Lord, notice where they're directing this, which knowest the hearts of all men. Show whether of these two thou hast chosen. This prayer is very, very instructive because you can notice that they're not going to God with this. God, here's who we think. We just want to confirm and see if our thinking is right. 
Now, by way of an application, isn't that the way sometimes we are in our life? We come up with a solution, and then we go to God and we say to God, will you just confirm my choice? Now, some cases, maybe we do need that. We make a decision, we do this. That's not what they're doing. What they've done is they met the criteria. The apostles put these two men, and there are, there are numerous, you know, uh, numerous ways we could look at this. And there are even some, again, who take the position that what the apostles were doing here was not really right. Now, again, I can't understand th that position. Because to me, when you read through it, they are taking all of the proper steps. They're praying to the Lord. They're not going to the Lord with what they think. They even, in their prayer, they say, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men. Right? You, Lord, know the hearts of these men. So here they have these two men who are fit in the way of the criteria, right? But they would never have dared to just make this choice, even between those two, without seeking God for direction. And by seeking direction from God, this was the method that was to be taken in all cases, especially in matters of such importance, right? So the substance of their prayer was not, God, we've already made our decision. Now, will you confirm it? No, theirs is, Lord, you are the one who knows the hearts. This is a characteristic, or we might say tonight, this is an attribute of God. I can't say that about anything else or anyone else that is a knower of the heart. Yet they're acknowledging an attribute of God. They're acknowledging something about these men that even Peter and the other apostles would have had no clue about ultimately. These men could have met the criteria, but what about their hearts? And here, they are said to petition God. Here's this, this attribute of God who knows the hearts of men. He knows not only their hearts, but he knows their motive. Well, why does he know their heart and why does he know their motive? Because he's the one that made them. You know, it's a fascinating study when you think about the attributes of God and you think, you know, God knows all things. God is sovereign. But you know what the real... The, the real uh, place of praise comes from is he reasoned that he knows that yes it's an attribute of God but he created us the creator knows his creation and so what you have happening here is you have these men who are acknowledging an attribute of God when they say God you know our hearts of all men when he talks about the heart he's not just talking about that organ that beats in our chest. He's talking about the thoughts, the counsels, the motives, the purposes, the reasons, good and bad, in the soul and in the heart of all men. So we see their prayer is proper. Notice they also ask for specific direction. Show whether of these two thou hast chosen. Now, they desire that God, of course, approves. Now, they did it properly. They put two that were qualified. They put two and meet the criteria, the qualification. But ultimately, it was God who had to, was going to make the ultimate choice on this based upon his purposes and his plans. So in the eternal purposes of God and his mind, which one of these two men 
was going to be pointed out to them. So what do they have to have? They have to have God directing them in a very pointed way to where they can clearly say, this is God's choice. So what they're getting ready to do is they're getting ready to do that which is very common, especially in the Old Testament, with regard to the casting of lots. Now, I'm going to give you an example of one I think is a very is a very powerful example of the casting of lots, and it's by no means meant to be exhaustive or is it going to be the only one, but I'm going to share one with you that I think really demonstrates how important this casting of lots actually was. So what are they doing? They're making an appeal to the mind and the will of God. They're appealing to know God's mind. They're appealing to know the will of God. And not just to know it, but to act upon what God's mind and will is. You see, here's the reality. When we pray to ask to know the will and the mind of God, it's not so that we can say we know it. The primary reason we do that is so that we can act upon it. If I know the will of God, if I know the mind of God, it's not just so that I can say I know God's mind, I know God's will. It is to act upon it. And that's what these men are going to do. God is going to clearly show which one of these two men is the choice, and they're going to act. And they're going to appoint just as God directs them. Lord, who knows the hearts of all men. Here's what are some things that these apostles are acknowledging. We don't. We don't know the hearts of men. They're also acknowledging that God knows us and knows these men better than we know them. So it is fitting, and it's really of only one choice here, that God should choose his own servants by his own providence and by his own direction. So really, there's something here. Should we really in our life let his hand, let his mind, let his will determine everything that befalls us? And I would say that's absolutely true. Our lives should be according to the will and mind of God. We should act according to his will. We should act according to his mind. Well, how do we know God's will? How do we know God's mind? We know and through his word. When someone struggles mightily and they say, I don't know the will of God. I don't know the mind of God. The first question we have to ask is, well, do you read his word? If you don't read his word, you're not going to know his mind. You're not going to know his will, but we can know his mind. We can know his will. Can we understand in in great detail all of his glory and all of his majesty? No, we can't, not to the fullest extent of our humanity, but we certainly can know his mind and his will. So these men, these apostles who are stepping into this process of casting lots are not doing this for the purpose of placing one of their preference with the idea of keeping the other one out. In other words, this isn't, again, a popularity contest. This is which one of these men is God's choice for this. Now, Verse 25 is really a rewind. It brings us back to why are we here? Why are they having to do this? It says that by God's choice, that he, the person who's chosen, may take part of this ministry and apostleship. So clearly this is for the reason we read about a number of weeks ago, from which Judas by transgression fell. Why is there a vacancy? 
because of Judas's sin, because of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, which by the way, was not by chance or by an act of randomness. Judas's betrayal itself was according to the ordination of God. So even this event, right? Judas's betrayal was according to the will and mind of God, yet Judas is still held accountable for his sin. And yet here's another, according to the mind and will of God, this individual is going to take the place in the ministry and apostleship. But notice this phrase too, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Now that's really a frightening expression there that he might go to his own place. Well, where does that place? That is separate eternally from God. Because of his sin, Judas went to his own place. <clears throat> so we see all these pieces are moving together to come to this conclusion. So whoever the lot falls upon, which we're going to spend a little time here in just a moment, whoever the lot falls upon would truly become one of those apostles and is truly a replacement for Judas, a part of the ministry and a part of the apostleship. So thirdly, let's notice the choice, and here's the lots, verse 26. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, in the choosing of these lots, they were following what was common in the Old Testament, which was often used when priests were unable to clearly discern the will of God about a matter, they would perform this casting of lots. That outcome, right, was determined by the providence of God. So whatever the outcome of the casting of lots, I'll give an example of how they would do this, that was known to be, this is God's providence in this. So what they're getting ready to do is they're going to say, however this falls out, we're going to cast the lots and whichever lot, whichever man the lot falls upon, that's the apostle. Okay. And they, they, they are firmly convinced that this is not going to be chance. It's not going to be happenstance. It's not going to be randomness. It's not like the flipping of a coin, right? If I was to flip a quarter, right? There's going to be, it's going to either land on heads or tails. And I keep flipping that and flipping that heads or tails, heads or tails. Whatever this lot came out to be, this had nothing to do with random. This was exactly what God had determined to be. Now I'm going to read to you a, a lengthy um, excerpt um, from, from John Gill on these lots, because I want you to listen to how he, he connects the thoughts between Matthias and Leviticus 16 as an example, and of course Leviticus 16 is the chapter about the Day of Atonement and the two goats. And you had the one goat that was labeled for the Lord and that goat would be killed and the other one was called the scapegoat and that one would be set free. This gives us a, a, a good example of the casting of lots process. So here's what Gill says. He says, they cast their lots that is into an urn or a vessel, which lots had the names of the two persons on them. Now, sometimes these lots, it may have been stone, it may have been pieces of wood, but so what would have happened is their names of these two men would have been on these, okay? 
And so, and it, and it was put in the name of the two persons on them and into another vessel, as is thought, were put two other lots. The one had the name of apostle on it and the other nothing. These being taken out by persons appointed for that purpose, the lot with Matthias's name on it was taken out against that which had the name of apostle on it, upon which he was declared to be the apostle. Now, in other words, so whichever one came out with that name apostle on it, that's who the choice would fall upon. Now, here's where he makes the connection between Leviticus 16. Now, he uses this term. He says, it may be that this was done in the same manner as the goats on the Day of Atonement had lots cast on them, which the Jews say was performed. There was a vessel, which they call Kalphi, or K-A-L-P-H-I, set in the court in which two lots, which were made of wood, stone, or metal, were put. The one had written on it for Jehovah, and the other was written for the scapegoat. The two goats being the one at the right hand of the priest and the other at the left, the priest shook the vessel and with his two hands took out the two lots and laid the lots on the two goats. The right on that which was at his right hand and the left on that which was at his left. And so the goat which had the lot put upon him on which was written for the Lord was killed. And that which had the other lot on which was written for the scapegoat was presented alive. So the lot here, and he's referring back to Acts 1 here, is said to fall upon Matthias. Or the lots being cast into the vessel as above related, those two drew them out of themselves and Matthias taking out that which had the word apostle on it. The lot, as a result, fell on him. Now, we can't say with 100% or that's exactly the process that he did here, but that's a similar situation as how they did the lots in the Old Testament times. So what do we know? We know for certain that the lot fell upon Matthias. Now, again, as I said at the beginning, here we think here's this successive apostle who's now taking the place of Judas, and yet we do not hear anything more about him after this. He is, he is that silent apostle we don't read about. We have only this record of the lot falling on him, which completed the 12. Now, in biblical history, it's not many, uh, much time after this that James was martyred. And yet, James is not replaced. So it's interesting just to think, from the situation of what God is doing here. What is God doing by showing us this? Why replace him? What's all these things that are happening here? And yet we look at this and we're not told specifically what. But we do see that Matthias was chosen by Lot. And let's remember this, that this was by the direct act of God. Okay, this was not something that they could say, look, let's do a two out of three here. Let's do best of five. Let's do best of seven. Let's do best of ten. This was that lot in whatever mode they used, it fell on Matthias and it was settled. Those other apostles took this as God knowing the heart. It, they had prayed about it. God knows the heart. And they had asked God specifically, show us whether these two, thou hast chosen which one. It's a settled matter. 
So this man, Matthias, is added and numbered, the Bible says. He is numbered with the 11 apostles. He is one of them. Now, what could happen today, right? We do have this happen. We have people who, who are church leaders. They are religious leaders of some sort who say something like this. I have a call from God to be an apostle. Can that be true? No. It can't be because they don't even meet the basic criteria of an apostle. They don't even have anyone or anything left to confirm, even in that sense, that it's even God's choice. To study history and to go back and to realize that even by the end of the first century, many of the what we would refer to as those early first century church fathers understood that there was a great difference between the authority of the original apostles and the authority of others in the church. So when we see that today, and even as Paul writes about these things in his letters, he writes about teachers and ministers and preachers and evangelists, but he doesn't write about more new apostles being added. So from the very outset of this book, and again, we're still in chapter one, we're seeing just a glimpse of the beginnings of God's, the church and God's work here, right? But what do we see? We see the, the, Apostles' reliance upon God's will and the reliance upon God's, God, God's people understanding God's mind. Well, how do we know that, folks? How do we know what God's mind is? How do we know what God's will is? Are we, are we commanded in the word of God to cast lots anywhere? No. But what we are told to do is to study the word. We are told to read the word. We are told to meditate upon the word. We are to pray and to search the scriptures. We are to submit to what God's word says about every issue. Not to just say, look, God, I'm, I'm going I'm to come to the word of God with my own presupposition and what I think we ought to do. And then I, I just want you to confirm my plan. No, this is, this, the word of God gives us exactly what we're supposed to do. What we should be doing as a church is we should be unified in praying and asking for God to show us Right. And of course, for God, as he tells us in his word, that we are willing to act upon what we know. Right. Every time we gather together, every time we think about building the church, we're not thinking about building the church for our own kingdom. We're not thinking about building the church so that we can get credit for something. We're building the kingdom of God. We're building it according to God's plan and God's purposes. So again, this, this, this is one of those accounts in Scripture that I think a lot of people, when we see it, we're not sure, well, how does this really apply to us? And I think the application here is really in the approach of how they relied upon God's choices and how they rely upon God's direction, how they relied upon God's the one that does the choosing. God's the one that determines what his church is going to be. You know, the church was never meant to be built by combining a bunch of men's great ideas and saying, how can we make the church more accepted to the culture? Or how can we make the culture more feel more welcome inside of the churches? No, it's supposed to be according to the will of God. And it should be according to the mind of God. Every time we have the opportunity to pray 
every time we have the opportunity to hear the word of God preach. I think we look at this passage, again, that verse in verse 24, and, and we approach this God and pray with knowledge. God who knows the heart, show us. Not in the case of choosing a new apostle, not in the case of choosing what God has not stated we should be doing, but what we should do even in our own life to be obedient to what God's word has said. So this is a significant event. So next week, we're going to jump into chapter number two, and we're going to speak about, talk about the day of Pentecost. We're going to talk about the, the mighty rushing wind. We're going to talk about the Holy Ghost and people being filled with the Holy Ghost and that very what is not really a controversial statement to speak with other tongues. A direct, simple study of the Word of God will show you immediately this was not some heavenly language that was, un, it was unintelligible. This was clearly being able to speak in another language and we'll put that really to rest uh, next week very easily. I, I will say I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked at the number of people who do say they know the word of God who are still struggling with this area of what did this speaking in tongues really mean. Acts is very clear about what this is. And I think what you'll find is that if you really pay attention to the context of everything that's going on around that, you'll find out how very clearly you couldn't come to the conclusion that this was some secret prayer language that someone tells you, if you can't speak in tongues, your faith is weak. That's not a biblical conclusion, right? And there are people that will tell you that. If you can't speak in tongues, it's because your faith is weak. Nowhere in Acts chapter number two does it suggest anything about that. And so we'll get into that and delve into that next week. All right, let's pray together. And then if there's any questions, we can kind of deal with those tonight. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I realize tonight there is much more we could say and much more we could study. But Lord, may we see the great truth here. And may we see this great truth of uh, you determining uh, it's your choice. It was by your sovereign and providential hand that this replacement, this successive apostle, uh, would be placed in this vacancy that was left by Judas. Father, we thank you for the, these, these attributes of an almighty God, a God who created us, a God who is, uh, uh, is the giver of life, and the God who is the only one who determines uh, what is and what should be. Uh, may we be obedient to the word. May we desire to know the scriptures in an even deeper way. And may we desire that Christ will be magnified and exalted in each one of us. For it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen.